Okay, we just got cut off. I don't know why. I've got three internet services that I'm paying for right now to try to find one that works. And, um, yeah, it, it's strange why when we go to Facebook, it works on Zoom, and when we go to Facebook, it doesn't work. <laughs> I have no idea. So now I'm back on my phone. I think I'll give, give a little recap just because when we save this video, it might only save this portion, not the previous portion. Um, I have no idea why I got cut off of the internet. It's very strange. So on my phone, my phone seems to work, but I prefer to do it on my computer. I've lost all internet connections. Hmm. Could be a computer problem. I'm going to... While we're talking, I'm just going to reboot my computer out of curiosity why this happened. So, I just want to summarize what I was saying. There's purport in which Prabhupada said it's a subtle fall down for a, a man to hear the singing of a woman or hear the voice or appreciate her beautiful face or features. And when the devotees read that, they wrote to Prabhupada and said, can we replace the Govinda prayers, because it's Jamuna singing, it's a woman, can we replace it with a man? But not with a man, can we replace, can we replace it with your singing of Govinda, Adipusha? And they were just, the point is that they were justified, in a sense, because they were just quoting Prabhupada's own books and they were quoting what Prabhupada said, and concluding that this being true, why do we have to be subjected every morning in seeing the deities to hearing the voice of a woman when right here in the Shastra you say that we shouldn't be doing it. And so today's, today's topic is about understanding Shastra, understanding Prabhupada by understanding his mood. And then if we understand him without understanding his mood, um, we could misunderstand him. So Prabhupada revealed his mood in the response, and there were some um, other things that he, that we could read into in trying to understand his mood, and I'll discuss that. But the, the thing that he definitely made clear was in response, he, he said no, uh, because at that point it had been going on for about five years in every temple around the world. So he, he didn't like it. He didn't like it that they wanted to change something. So Prabhupada had written a letter from Krishna Balaramandir. He said, uh, this is going on all over the movement. Your Western diseases, you, you always want to change things. Why do you want to change this? And he said, we're doing it here in Krishna Balaramandir. Uh, it's fine here, fine for me, <laughs> fine for all of us. Why it shouldn't be fine in Los Angeles? And the other thing he said, so that was the first problem. And then Prabhupada had brought this problem up before, that sometimes devotees wanted to do things a certain way, which we thought was an improvement, or closer to Shastric injunction, or closer, so-called, to what Prabhupada wanted. And Prabhupada's reply was, why are you always trying to change everything? Um... 
why are you trying to change? Overloaded. Yeah, when you go to the when you go to the phone, it overloads. When you go on the computer, it does. So why do you always why do you always want to change everything? That was Prabhupada's. That was Prabhupada's point. He said, "Your American diseases, you always want to change." You know, and he's saying, "Look at it's fine. Everything's fine. Why are you creating a problem? There is no problem here." <laughs> That's basically what he's saying. And then he said, so many people are chanting. So many voices together. This is Sankirtan. So Prabhupada didn't chastise them. He, but he was basically saying, why are you creating a problem here where there's no problem? This is Sankirtan. Now, one time Prabhupada was with, a, apparently was with a, I met a member of the Swami Narayan group. They're very strict about not associating with women. And he said, this sannyasi said, you know, we're, we, we're totally separate from women. We, we don't see women, this and that. And Prabhupada laughed. He said, how could you not see women? They're everywhere. So Prabhupada would often say to men who would complain, oh, the women uh, are disturbing us, uh, this and that, we want to kind of push them away. And Prabhupada would say, well, you know, because women are everywhere, the only place you can go where they don't exist is the forest. So, you know, you're just going to have to go to the forest if, you, if you're disturbed by women. But there's one big problem if you go to the forest. If all the brahmacharis go to the forest, who's going to preach? Because the brahmacharis are the main preachers. So... Um, Then, then Prabhupada in, in, in other places in relation to this he said something which I feel is very significant. He said basically he said you know in so many I'll just put it bluntly basically he said grow up. Just, just become mature. You have to be mature enough to deal with women respectfully and soberly. That, that's really what he wanted. So without coming directly coming out and say that, saying that, you can understand that that was Prabhupada's mood. Now, there's one other thing that I always felt, although it wasn't stated exactly, but I think it was subtly indicated when Prabhupada said, what's the problem? It's a group of people chanting. Um, Prabhupada didn't, didn't say, I like this song and I want to play it. But in a sense he was saying that, you know, we're doing this for five years. I'm the one who decided to do it. They're telling Prabhupada, can we not play this when he was the one who decided to do it? It's kind of strange when you think about it. And as I mentioned, we heard the story where Prabhupada first heard the Govinda prayers and he was crying and he appreciated it. It brought, brought out emotion. So he appreciated what they had done. George Harrison and the devotees, Mukunda Maharaj, you know, arranged this song and wrote the melody. He appreciated it. 
he appreciated the effort of his devotees. So from my perspective, in playing the Govinda prayers, not only was it a meditation on Govinda, as described by Brahma and Brahma Samhita, but it was also an appreciation of the bhakti that the devotees put into that. So without saying, I like it, we're going to play it, that connotation is there. I think it's obvious. He was, Prabhupada was the one who said we should play it. So why did he say it? Because he liked it. So now you're writing to your spiritual master to undo something he did, to undo something he likes, and he has to, has to politely explain to you that you're being immature, that you're always changing things that don't need to be changed. You're making mountains out of molehills. And so if the devotees had understood these things, they wouldn't have written Prabhupada. That's my whole point. So now you take Shastra within this vacuum of here. It's right here. It's clear. Prabhupada says <clears throat> a man should not listen to the voice of a woman because if he appreciates the singing of a woman, it's a fall down. But is it a fall down to appreciate the singing of a woman? Well, of a woman devotee, excuse me. Prabhupada appreciated this song. And you can say, well, he's a pure devotee. So he's not affected. But I think it's something deeper. Prabhupada appreciated, when Prabhupada appreciated service or appreciated how the deities were dressed or appreciated prasadam, <clears throat> he was appreciating the bhakti. So was Prabhupada afraid to appreciate the bhakti of a woman because she's a woman and he's a sannyasi? Of course not. So Prabhupada wasn't hearing the sense gratification of a woman's voice, he was appreciating the bhakti of Jamuna singing. And Prabhupada said she had bhava. Amazingly, he said that. So <clears throat> Prabhupada's hearing <coughs> excuse me, Prabhupada's hearing her bhava when she's singing. What Prabhupada's talking about in the purport is basically songs sense gratification, songs of sense gratification. And I think we all know that modern music generally is singing about so-called romance, so-called love. And it's also obviously heavily sprinkled with the connotation of sexual love and the way it's often sang in the voice it's very sensual. I'm not going to imitate it because you know what I'm talking about. It's not like they, you know, if I, okay, I will do some imitation. If I did a kirtan like, you'd be thinking, what is wrong with him? You know, because, because it, it has this modern pop sexual music vocal connotation. That's what Prabhupada's talking about. If you're appreciating this beauty, this woman sings so beautiful, I appreciate it. It's just reminding you. It's just agitating, sexually agitating and disturbing. When Prabhupada hears his beloved disciple Jumuna chant, he's inspired. Prabhupada asked, there's a story, Prabhupada always asked Jumuna to chant 
you know, these public programs in India. One time she didn't want to. Either she had a bad throat or she just felt like there's so many men who could chant. And she kind of felt self-conscious in front of the men. So Prabhupada said, do you want to chant? And Jumuna was like, throat. You know, she couldn't. I think Prabhupada was too far away. She couldn't say anything like this. Prabhupada said, chant. Prabhupada loved her chanting. So now Prabhupada is asking a woman to chant night after night after night. And the brahmacharis are writing, telling Prabhupada, we want to hear you chant, we don't want to hear a woman chant. I think you understand what I'm saying, that there's this whole context of Prabhupada appreciating the bhakti of Jamuna, asking her to chant, apparently going against the very thing he's saying in this purport. But then when you think about it within this context, you understand he's not talking about a woman who has bhava singing the holy name. He's talking about ordinary women singing ordinary songs. So when Prabhupada's hearing Jumuna singing Govinda prayers, he's hearing her bhakti. He's appreciating anything. Anytime Prabhupada appreciates something, it's because of the bhakti. And you may know this story, but the artist department wanted to redo a lot of the paintings because they become more proficient. And I believe every painting they redid except one Prabhupada rejected. And materially, they were all better. But spiritually, they weren't. And Prabhupada rejected them. They were, I, I'm sure they were quite surprised that they were rejected. But they all thought they were better. But the mood... There was something wrong with the mood, or they had changed something from the original, and Prabhupada didn't want it changed. Uh, in some cases, Krishna had very long, long hair, and Prabhupada said, like, you've made them like hippies, because you're all hippies, and you like hair. And it was just like one thing after another. So Prabhupada said, the old paintings are fine, and the old paintings are they're quite simple. They look like, many of them look like, you know, first-year art student paintings. And they became quite proficient. They became really good, as you know, later on. And most of those paintings he rejected. Um, one time, Prabhupada was eating the Mahaprasadam, and it was so good, he asked for the devotee who cooked to come up, and he said, he said to the devotee, thank you for following the regulative principles. And I can tell by tasting this prasadam, you're following the principles. So Prabhupada was totally in tune to the bhakti, and that's how he could appreciate devotees. Even We may not appreciate them, but he could appreciate them for their bhakti, for their devotion, because we're looking at it materially, and he's not seeing it that way. So this, is, this story is one of my favorite examples of a situation in which what was said in Shastra was clear. Brahmacharis, Vanaprasa, and Sanyas should not hear the singing of a woman. It was clear. It was right there. But now if we look at the context, we go a little deeper. We understand Prabhupada's mood. We understand how Prabhupada engaged women. We understand how he appreciated those Govinda prayers, how it was the bhakti that he was experiencing. Then we say, oh yeah. Well, if we're talking about devotees, 
and bhakti, it's different. And then Prabhupada hammers on the head, and not in this letter, but another letter. And if you're so immature that you can't maintain sobriety in the presence of a woman, then the only thing I can tell you is go to the forest because then you won't see any women. But that just means you've basically been defeated. You've succumbed to your own sexual desire, your own sexual immaturity. So when I read when I read one of these letters, because there are many letters, not many, but there's some letters like this in which men are complaining about the women. Can they just, you know, go in another room or go in the back of the temple or they just were pushing them out. And this one letter, Prabhupada, he just very very directly told them and you have to mature. You have to be mature. You can't not see women, so you have to, by your spiritual strength, if you're strong, you won't have a problem. It's the right answer, of course. So, now we take in consideration all these answers, and then we read this purport. All of a sudden, it starts to look different. It's not exactly what I think it is. Now, you're all probably sitting here thinking, of things that you have heard that you now realize may not have been taken, uh, may not have taken into consideration other things that Prabhupada said, but also other things that Prabhupada did. Also the way Prabhupada dealt with the, that situation that's being described in that purport. So this is extremely important. And what we're also discovering from this discussion it's not only what Prabhupada said in other places, it's not only what he did, but it was also what was his feeling about this. Because this is very important. Because sometimes you read a purport, but those of us who know, or read a verse, more specifically a verse, and when we're trying to understand and explain the verse to other devotees, you know, some devotees may say, well, it doesn't seem like you're explaining the verse exactly the way it is. But then we have to say, but I know the mood of Prabhupada, and I'm explaining explaining it according to his mood. That's a significant point. Now, you may know the story of Rupa Goswami who wrote a prayer about Lord Chaitanya's mood at Ratiatra. And Mahaprabhu came to see that verse, and it totally described his inner mood. Unknown to Rupa Goswami, Mahaprabhu read the verse. And Srivadamadar was with Mahaprabhu and he said, Srivadamadar, this is, uh, Rupa Goswami understands my mood. How is it possible that he understands my mood? And Srivadamadar said, anyone whom you give mercy to will understand your mood. But uh, and then there's, a, there's a, a, a little saying Prabhupada said quite often, and it was it was in the context of somebody either doing something, taking initiative to do something, or not doing something they were told to do, or not doing it properly. And it's the three kinds of servant analogy. You may have heard this. First class servant will know what to do. He'll know what his master wants. He'll know what to do. He won't have to be asked. Second class servant will need to be asked, and he'll do it, and third-class servant, and Prabhupada said, basically he forgets. He's told what to do, and then he comes back. What, what was I supposed to do? Um, and Prabhupada 
gave that example once because he had asked a devotee to do something. Then he came back a year later and the devotee didn't do it, so that's like he forgets. So, but the first class servant, he, he knows what the spiritual master wants because he understands the desires of the, the desires, the mentality, the mood, the nature, and and therefore he proactively engages in service because he knows this is what his spiritual master wants. Though this is very important, and many, many devotees did outstanding service for Prabhupada. Not not because Prabhupada told them what to do, but because they knew Prabhupada's mood, they knew his heart, they knew what he wanted. And so they thought, we should do this preaching program, this would please Prabhupada, we know we know he really wants that. Either either he's mentioned it directly or indirectly we could see, you know, because he always, like Prabhupada may talk about something, he never asked anybody to do it, but he may talk about, you know, we should go to the villages, you know, just kind of nonchalantly, go to the villages and do this and that. And then some devotee knows, oh, I can see Prabhupada's heart is in in there with the village people, or I could see his heart is there with the scientific preaching. I can see his heart is there to convince professors and scholars. I could see his his heart is there and with mass book distribution or massive heart. You know. And so, understanding his heart, we develop programs. So, it's very important to understand the heart, the mood, what I call the flavor of Srila Prabhupada. And you will understand that, of course, by reading his books, but also maybe more so by hearing from his disciples about their experiences with him through the recorded videos that are available now. I think there's like 80 of them now, or 90 or 100 interviews. And through all the biographies written about Prabhupada by the disciples. And um, in so many other ways, just by hearing classes, you will hear, you'll hear things about Prabhupada. And what I would suggest when you're hearing these things, is make note, oh, Prabhupada liked this, or Prabhupada really didn't like this. Oh, Prabhupada told so-and-so in this context, this or that. Like, um, what's also often interesting is sometimes Prabhupada will see something, and will see something a few times, and it may contradict his experience of what life is like in India, or contradict in some way what it seems that the Shastra is saying, because often the Shastra is describing a, a society and a culture which is much different than ours. And then uh, what's going on in our society will sometimes, in subtle ways or even in direct ways, be much different than what was described. I'm not saying it's better, it's just different, but, but it's just how it is, and that's how the world works. And Prabhupada will see that. So then sometimes he would adjust he would adjust things he said to be what appears to be contradictory to what Shastra says or what Chanaka Pandit says or what Mano Samhita says, because it's it's just different now. And so you hear that. Oh, that's interesting. Prabhupada said this, but I read in his books he said that, and now he's saying this within this context because he's seeing something different. And and just to see that is interesting because it sends a message that sometimes the way we understand Shastra uh, may not always coincide with the reality of what we're dealing with at the present moment. And and um, 
we may have to broaden our understanding to understand, well, that was a general statement, or that was a statement only about non-devotees, it wasn't about devotees, or that was a statement which was applicable in Satya Yuga to the social context at that time, when actually you couldn't be a Brahmin if you weren't born in a Brahmin family. It was a different time. So these things have to be taken into consideration. So that's what I wanted to speak about. And... um, I I think this will help our understanding of Prabhupada's books and instructions and Shastric instructions. Uh, maybe the last thing I'll say and I'll take your questions or comments is that I've had some discussion with the devotees about books aside from Prabhupada's books, the teachings of previous acharyas and the, the many books devotees are writing. And I think the discussion in this class is relevant to that discussion because, you know, the acharyas are are giving so much insight into our philosophy. And that's what they do, clarifying it and so forth. And what is necessary in understanding the teachings of the acharyas is the very thing we're discussing, to understand Prabhupada's mood. Because maybe the acharya is saying something which is applicable to a different time and situation. And we don't know that. And we're reading what he said, and it's like, this is difficult to understand. It's not exactly the way Prabhupada said it. So then you understand context. Okay, I understand the principle. He's applying a principle, he's applying the detail to the principle differently because different time, different situation, different context. So often when you don't understand context, you, you could easily misunderstand instruction. And we have this example. I believe was it, it was Jiva Goswami who was telling his people that Radha and Krishna were married. <clears throat> and the explanation was that Jiva Goswami was building up Vrindavan and he needed the help of all the Brahmins, smarter Brahmins and so forth. And they were, they had no place in their brain for a conception that Radha and Krishna were not married because their standard of morality wouldn't allow them to think that way. And so we were told that he told them, no, they were married and um, because he needed their help. And if he didn't say that, they would have all left him. That's what we were told. Whether it's true or not, I, I haven't read it anywhere. But I don't have a reason to believe it's not true. But anyway, the principle is, now we understand the context, because you'll read it and say, why did he say that? That's not our philosophy. Oh, this is why he said it. And he's the greatest scholar, and he's saying it, and that contradicts everyone else. Oh, there's a context here. Hmm. We, we've told the story so many times how Prabhupada <clears throat> was asked if he could remarry and he said, yes, you can. And when did we ever hear Prabhupada say, yes, you can remarry? He always said, you know, if your marriage doesn't work out, then don't remarry. And now he's giving a devotee a blessing. I think I told this the other day. And then when asked, Prabhupada said, because he's going to do it, whether I say to do it or not, I can see he's going to do it. So I don't want to tell him not to do something that he's going to do anyway, because if I tell him not to do it, now he's disobeying my order, and that's 
bad for his spiritual life. So within that context, Prabhupada said, okay. And there's another story. This is a funny story. There was some devotee living in Mayapur and he was disturbing everybody. He was he was into music, he had a guitar. Um, the story really, I don't remember the detail, but he's always singing songs, making up songs, singing. But I think his interactions were very unpleasant and the devotees were just like complaining to Prabhupada about him so once. Prabhupada met the devotee and he said, I heard you sing and play um, music very nicely. He said, yes. And he said, why don't you just go travel around the world and play your music to people? And the devotee said, oh, that's, that's a good idea. And then he went. And that way Prabhupada didn't discourage him and he satisfied the other devotees. But it's not that now everyone who has a guitar is supposed to go around the world singing songs. That's what Prabhupada wants us to do. Oh, I play guitar. That must mean that that's what Prabhupada wants me to do. Like, goodbye, wife. Goodbye, children. I'm going. Pied Piper, you know. So, I, you know, I think that's obvious, of course. Uh, instruction like that is obvious. But the point is we have to consider... Consider all the circumstances and the application. And uh, specifically, like, what is the essence? What's the most important thing? What is, what is Prabhupada communicating here? You know, what's the principle? So we could see in the first story I talked, the, the principle is don't change. The principle is be, be sober around women. And don't, you know, don't be fanatic. Basically, that's what he was saying. That's, that's the principle. That, so, you know, we, wanna, we want to understand these are important teachings of Prabhupada and then apply those to different instructions. Okay, now it's time to see what you have said. This is from Nitin Tiagi. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences oh, and teaching Srila Prabhupada. Okay, so now we have a problem. Well, let's see if we still have the problem. I'm trying to get my computer to turn on. It was trying to restart and it didn't because now we, we can continue where we left off reading yesterday if you have no questions about this. I mean, I could talk more, but I think that I've communicated what I wanted to. It's just, it's, it's just so important to understand. It's like, like if I if I say if you know me really well, and I say something, you will know exactly what I mean you will know exactly what I'm trying to communicate to that person. But if that person doesn't know me, they could totally misunderstand. They could think, oh, what he said is so heavy or so wrong, or I never heard Prabhupada say that. He thinks so many things. But then you say, uh, then, then you say, 
No, 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 I know Mahaprabhu, that's not what he means. He would never say that. What he means is this or that. And you say, oh, thank you, I didn't realize that yet. Because you know me, you know what I meant by that. So we need to know Prabhupada more deeply to know what he means. Okay, so Saradhya Rasa has brought up a hot topic, um, the topic of homosexuality. But I want to, Saradhya, okay, I'll read the next thing you said. Uh, the growing amounts of gay devotees in ISKCON who are sincere and dedicated. Yeah, okay. So, sometimes Prabhupada has been accused by some people as being how do we say it politely because they weren't polite about it you know being a racist I guess that's you know because he said some things about different races <clears throat> he appears to be he appears to be uh, people could read it as well he appears to be misogynistic look at what he said about women um, look at what he said about homosexuals. He's homophobic. You know, you could make all these accusations. So the first thing I would say is that anyone, anyone who ever spent any time with Prabhupada knows that's absurd. But but as a general principle, a philosophical principle, someone who loves Krishna, someone who's a pure devotee, cannot be racist, it's impossible because they don't see they're not seeing on the material platform now if Saradhya Rasa <clears throat> has a 200 IQ and I have an 85 IQ and it comes down to doing some work where we need a person with a high IQ I'm not going to be the one so we're going to pick her that's not that's not gender discrimination. That's not racism, sexism, or anything. Or what's the word um, for male misogyny? Is there such a word? Is there such a thing? Females who hate men. So it's none of that. It's just, oh, you're more suited. It's nothing about the respect I have for you, the love I have for you, or don't have for you, so-called. Not, it's not about that. It's about, oh... Here is a person more qualified. So, when we speak of Varnashram, Varnashram is a classification according to occupation and ashram. And it defines different, different characteristics and different duties for different people. It's not meant to create a hierarchy of you're better and you're worse. It's meant to create a synergy of who is most qualified to do what. All the hierarchy is, is more or less placed on it by people in the material concept. Because spiritually there's equality and those who are self-realized see that. So when Prabhupada is, is describing the differences between male and female, the differences between, between this race or that race, as may be described in scripture, it's only in the context of how they would fit within society. It's not a personal bias or prejudice because he doesn't see that anybody is barred from engaging in Krishna consciousness. It's kind of like we say, you know, 
equal opportunities for everybody, but we have different bathrooms. You know, something like that, you know. We love the tiger, we don't embrace him. So there's some, some discrimination is there. So in, in relation to homosexuality, I want to include gender differences, not just people who are attracted to the same sex, but people who, but women. I want to include women in there. So, as you probably know, Sardinia Rasa, if you've listened, if you've listened to any women talk about Prabhupada, one of the things that they will say is, I never felt like I was a woman. Prabhupada never made me feel like I was a woman. You can't necessarily say that about everyone. <laughs> you might say, you know, there's a lot of a lot of men in ISKCON who really make me conscious that I'm a woman. And it, and I wouldn't deny that. Unfortunately true. Sardar Yurasa, Rasa, you're a woman, you stand over there, you go in this line, you don't do this, you don't do that. That some women have been subjected to that. It's not so bad now. It was worse in earlier days of ISKCON, but it does exist. But all the women who were with Prabhupada will testify, I never he never made me feel like I was a woman, and he never made me feel that there there were services only men could do. This is verbatim what they say. So now you go to the books of women less intelligent, women this and that, and you think, oh, your guru, some you know person who doesn't know us, and say your guru is misogynistic, sexist, sexist, chauvinistic, racist, blah, 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 blah. When in fact it's impossible for a pure devotee to be that way. And when you get in a pure devotee's association, you realize that. Prabhupada had disciples who were homosexual. He knew that. It wasn't a problem for him. I mean, illicit sex is illicit sex. It doesn't matter if you're homosexual or whatever you are. Prabhupada discouraged it. But as we said last week, Prabhupada, or I don't know if it was this class, but Prabhupada didn't go into the devotee's bedrooms. He didn't go there. He said, these are the four principles. Whatever your sexual orientation is, these are meant to be followed. We were told that one, Prabhupada had a, a servant who was uh, homosexual, and he was having a really, really hard time, with, you know. And Prabhupada finally just said, okay, when, then why don't you live with this boy or marry him? I don't think he said marry him, then live with him. So Prabhupada was like that. He had his principles, and he would stand for his principles. But if he had a sincere devotee that was just trying, 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 and couldn't follow, He would make adjustments. And um, it's been pointed out that historically speaking, and this is, this is very important because I think one of the mistakes we're making in ISKCON now is we're not referring to historical precedents in making decisions and projecting the future of how to preach. There are so many historical precedents about new religious movements, and we're just doing exactly what the other ones have done. There's statistical research that if you do this, this is going to happen. If you do that, that's going to happen. And I've heard a lot of devotees making projections and strategies <clears throat> and, you know, shooting around ideas that, that are not informed by historical social studies about religious movements. And if they were, I think a few of the things they're saying they would probably take back because they would realize that there's some things they, they're they weren't really clear about because 
they were not informed. They didn't have this information. In any case, so Prabhupada, that I know of, had two disciples he gave sannyas to <clears throat> who were gay. I know of several gay men who lived in the Brahmacharya ashram with everything, no incident. No one had a problem with that because they were just sincere devotees. If you want to justify illicit sex, no matter what your sexual orientation will be, will be against it. Um, so if you read Prabhupada's books, he's saying that, you know, homosexuality is not ordinary. It's not something. It's not... I mean, you can take it, I, I mean, you can take it in different ways. But I think you have to take it ultimately in terms of how Prabhupada applied it. And it's true, Prabhupada was definitely against gay marriages because he he criticized priests for authorizing gay marriages. But as you're saying, more and more people are realizing they're gay, more and more those gay people will want relationships. And it's, you know, the question comes up, will ISKCON be involved in authorizing marriages gay people. Probably not in our lifetime. I wouldn't doubt it would happen in the future. But of course, we we can't ask Prabhupada. We can only go on what he said. And he criticized that. So that's generally um, Iskand's position. But I don't find that individual devotees with individual dealing with individual gay people wouldn't necessarily discourage them if that's what they wanted to do. Because when you know their situation and you know their following principles and so forth, and you know that it's, you know, it's working out for them, why would you try to disrupt that if knowing knowing that if they weren't together they would just be having other relationships with other members of the same sex, you know. And so a lot of us regret that we never discussed these things with Prabhupada. And you could say, well, if if this were discussed with Prabhupada, I think it's it's kind of obvious he would say this, but you can't say that because someone will say, I don't think it's obvious. So these are these are problems we have to deal with, but I'm only sharing with you observations. And there are devotees who are dead set against homosexuality. And not that they don't like de devotees who are homosexual, they just don't want to have anything, they don't want to encourage them to get married because Prabhupada said he was against that. But there are others who, I wouldn't say are encouraging it, but they're not trying to break it up if it happens. They'll, they will encourage the devotees in their spiritual life in whatever ashram they're in. And that's generally Prabhupada's mood. So even if we can't, <clears throat> I can't say I'm not gonna. I can't marry you. And you say I want your blessings, you know, to get married. I say, unfortunately, you know, I will encourage you in your spiritual life, 
but I can't encourage you in this. Even the, even if you wanted to encourage him, even if you personally thought, I could see this is actually good, it's awkward because you don't have the sanction of Prabhupada. Although, if Prabhupada were here today and you talked to him about that, he might say, like he saw, told this other devotee, then okay, live with that boy if that's what you need. He might say that. And you could use that example and say, well, I could say that probably. You know, it's tricky because there's always going to be devotees who say, no, you can't do that. And so, you know, we, uh, I, I personally, my observation of the ethos in our movement towards gay people is it's quite healthy. Because on an individual level, when you know somebody, you know their situation, you deal with them in a way that you encourage them in their spiritual life, which is always what Prabhupada did. You know, okay, you, you're gay, you want to be gay, fine. Just, you know, engage. And we never saw, I never saw Prabhupada personally dealing with any disciple differently than he dealt with any other disciple. <clears throat> so Sardiya Ras is asking, um, how did Prabhupada deal with his gay disciples? Same way he dealt with his non-gay disciples. How did Prabhupada deal with his women? Actually, he took better care of his women than he did the men. Did you know that? There was a time in Iskon where women were in the back of the temple, they were served prasadam last. Their Brahmacharini, the Brahmacharini quarters were not as nice in many temples as the Brahmachari quarters, etc. Prabhupada's dealing with women was the opposite. He always made sure they had the best facilities, better than the men. Uh, in India, when he would travel to engagements, they traveled with him. The men took taxis and buses, he took care of them. I don't know if you all know that, but he did. So, you know, how did Prabhupada treat the women? Same way he treated the men? No, he actually treated them better. Nobody knows that. Um, I was reading something really interesting, Saradiya, and all of you. <clears throat> and I don't know if you know this, but we had... Um, I don't want to say we had gender equality or egalitarianism because for some people that's a really nasty word. So let me just say that in the movement began, women had the same opportunities as men. Women were not dealt with really any differently than men. Of course, they're women, you know, obvious differences. But in terms of facility, encouragement, how they were seen, it was the same as men. Then, it was a certain time in ISKCON that leading men, especially sannyasis, changed all that. So women used to be next to the men in the temple, then they were pushed to the back. They used to lead kirtans, give classes that was stopped, that weren't allowed to, etc. So some senior devotees who were, were spent lots of time, like from the earliest days of the movement, some senior devotees were asked, specifically Satsurup Maharaj and Brahmananda were asked about all those changes that were made 
to kind of put women in a bit of a second-class citizen situation. And they were particularly asked, did Prabhupada ever enact any of those, ever talk about those, ever speak about women being this way or that way, and thus deserving that kind of treatment? And they both said, no, he never said that. It was all done by his devotees. So now you have a problem, because you're probably thinking, how could they misunderstand Prabhupada so much? How could they be doing things that he didn't even want? Which is an excellent question. And we don't even need the answer, because it just happened. And that's a good enough answer. Or maybe the answer is never underestimate the power of Maya. Or never underestimate how much a 22-year-old sannyasi hates women. So, you know, to make an assumption that everything that's going on in ISKCON is exactly the way Prabhupada wanted it is not a good assumption. That you have to determine. You have to understand. Is you know, if you sometimes see something going on and you don't feel it's right, don't assume that this is like right because this is how it is. It may not be. It may have it may have maybe something Prabhupada didn't want. So in answer to your question, how did he deal with gays? Same way he dealt with every devotee. How did he deal with women? Same way. How did he deal with black devotees? Same way he dealt with white devotees, green devotees, yellow devotees, red devotees, male devotees, female devotees, homosexual, transgender, whatever. He just wanted everyone to have Krishna consciousness. <clears throat> Prabhupada, and this is important, Prabhupada did not deal with people on the basis of their body. And that's why the women who were with Prabhupada said, I never, ever felt like I was a woman because he didn't deal with me that way. He dealt with me as a spirit soul and he engaged me. And they go, you do the, you know, to the man, you do this. To the woman, you do that. It was the same thing. You organize this, you organize that. You preach here, you preach there. That's what he was doing. And why was he doing it? And he, he said, he said once, he said, you know, the Indian women... They don't do what you're doing. They stay home, this and that. But you have a different culture. So Prabhupada, Prabhupada's thinking, why not engage them? Now we have twice, you know, instead of just engaging the men, we can engage the women. Now we have twice the manpower. Because the women are, they can organize programs. They can preach. They can lead kirtan. So why not? That was Prabhupada's thinking. He didn't think, oh, they're women. Or, you know... Oh, we're going to Africa, you know. So, like, the black, the rate, the black race—they're not qualified. They're not this or that. Never thought like that. If they rendered service, he loved them as much as he loved anyone who rendered service. And so, any of these statements that were people—it seems that Prabhupada was. Racist, sexist, misogynistic, chauvinistic, patriar patriarchal, yeah, a little bit. That's that's the culture, the world, the whole world's patriarchal. But but patriarchal. But if you actually look at how Prabhupada engaged people, there was none of that, absolutely none of that. In spite of things he may have said which were more around organizing things socially by recognizing the nature of people. Are women different than men? Of course they are. Socially, 
Should that be taken in consideration? It must be taken into consideration unless you create havoc. Are different races of people different? Yes, you have to take things in consideration. I, I travel to many countries, and you have to know the culture of the country. Otherwise, you could you can be ineffective or you could be offensive. If I say something that is acceptable here in America, it may it may offend people in another country. So yes, so you have to oh, the Chinese people like this, the Russian people are like this, the the South American people are like this. I was in South America and I'd say, Well, back in America, no, I think it was in Mexico and they said uh, well in America and they'd say, This is America. <laughs> so it's kind of like a pet peeve. <clears throat> Don't call Mexico not America. It's actually North America. And South America is, you know, I say back in America, and you go, this is America. This is also America. It's just South America and North America. So um, they kind of caught me off guard. I go, yeah, that's, you're right. Um, so I'd say in the United States. Okay, in the United States, in Mexico. But don't say in America, because this is America. Anyway. So I think that's important to understand about Prabhupada. Now, when Prabhupada, you know, okay, Prabhupada notes differences between different classes of people, differences between devotees and non-devotees, differences between jnanis and yogis, <clears throat> differences between Brahmins, Chatras, Vaishyas, and Sudras, differences between men and women, differences between races. But it's it's for adapt, adapting socially and adapting the preaching to understand these things. So things socially things can go well. But there's no indication that Prabhupada doesn't equally love everyone, no matter what they are, their sexual orientation, or this or that. That would be a mistake to think that way. And I think some devotees who dislike those people would use certain things that Prabhupada said to make it sound like Prabhupada disliked those people also, just the way they dislike them, just like we saw this thing in limiting the women, in a way that Prabhupada never limited the women because the men were afraid of the women because the women were the enemy. They were Maya personified. And they just wanted to keep them as far away as possible. Prabhupada was not disturbed by women. <clears throat> so there's no way that Prabhupada would say the things that those immature uh, young men said. It's impossible. And they, these were his disciples, his daughters, which he loved dearly. He would never mistreat them, like the men mistreated them. So if you look at Prabhupada like you would look at an ordinary person, and you say, oh, look at him, he's prejudiced. Look what he said about women. Look what he said about black people. Look what he said about politicians. Look what he said about scientists. <laughs> look what he said about Mayavadis. It sounds like Prabhupada has this peeve pet peeve with Mayavadis. He really hates them. No, he doesn't. He only hates what they're saying. He doesn't hate them. So I think that's important to understand. Did that answer the question, Saradiya? Or is there more? Krishna says, we did not meet Prabhupada personally, so we know him only from what he said or wrote. No, my, the whole point of this class is um, you you know him by hearing 
from his disciples. You have to. I think if there's anything that we take away from this class, it's that we have to read all those biographies. We have to listen to all those memories. There's 80 memories. They're about an hour and a half. So if you could listen to a half a memory or a quarter of a memory every day, I do it practically every day. It's going gonna, it's gonna to open you up. It's going to open your universe up. Because the Prabhupada you're going to hear about in those memories may not be the Prabhupada you're thinking of or understanding when you read his books. And I think that's very important. So that's, that's the essence of what I'm saying is every biography you can get your hands on, read it. And every memory of Prabhupada you can get your hands on, listen to it. And then everything I'm saying in this class, it will be clear to you because then you'll understand when you're reading his books. Oh, he said that, but in this situation he said that, in this situation he did that. So therefore I understand that when Prabhupada's saying this, he doesn't mean he's not demeaning people. He's just he's just it's like it's like that book, Men Are from Mars, Women from Venus. He's not demeaning men or demeaning women. He's just delineating the differences so that you can adjust to those differences and you can deal with those differences. Prabhupada talks about the differences of men and women so that married couples can understand those differences and get along. He's not evaluating them or judging. And often, well, we also have to understand, when he's talking about men and women, he's not talking about devotees. He's talking about ordinary men and ordinary women. Because Bhakti Siddhanta said, he said, if you're a devotee, you should see your wife as Krishna, Krishna's and you should serve your wife. And you should become the humble servant. Do what she wants. That's humility, that's Vaishnavism. Vaishnavism. But from the material point of view, that's called being henpecked or being weak. So Prabhupada says in his books, Men have big egos. They want to be in charge. They want their wives to be subservient to them and do what they say. Totally. That's the male ego. But that's not for devotee men. And all the devotee men, they pick that up and they turn their wives into slaves. What's for devotee men is your servant. And you should serve your wife. And you should serve all the women. You should serve everybody, every living entity. So you see how easily it is to misunderstand. That that men in charge, wife, submissive, servant, that has created so many problems. But for, for men who don't have sensitivity, responsibility, compassion, kindness, um, when they hear that, it's just they'll, they'll run with it and they'll make their wives miserable. So <clears throat> another thing that we should understand is when Prabhupada says somebody should be this way, it's only if the person in relationship with that they should be that way towards is also qualified. A disciple should surrender to his guru. To what guru? To a qualified guru, not to any guru. A wife should serve her husband. What kind of husband? In Prabhupada's own words, who has not fallen. 
should serve a husband who has not fallen. So when Prabhupada's saying, do A, B, and C, do it to the qualified person. He's not saying it due to a fool and rascal and let them destroy you and control you. You know, you surrender to bogus guru. He goes to hell, you go to hell. That's what Prabhupada said. So, you know, you have to understand all these things. And uh, another thing, Krishna Karshani, the, the problem is, and this is a problem even for learned devotees, if you're trying to understand something, you want to understand everything the Shastra says about it. You want to understand everything Prabhupada says about it. Otherwise, you're, you'll be in a somewhat, um, you'll be, you know, it's like this. It's like, if you don't like a certain political leader, it's really hard to understand why anyone would like them. And vice versa, uh, uh, from the other side, they can't understand why you like your political leader. You can't understand why they like their political leader. And the reason they like it is because they're only hearing good things about that leader or they're only hearing bad things about their leader. So I think, how could you vote for this one? Because I'm only hearing bad things about them. But they've got their ears open to the good things and they turn off the bad things. So a lot of times, and you know this, that when we're trying to understand Krishna consciousness and we... we we kind of have a, a sense of the way we want to see it, we'll interpret everything that Prabhupada says in the light of that when it may not be true. And that's why we need to read everything. And then we try to understand everything. Okay, Prabhupada has made some heavy statements about certain races or genders, but we know as a pure devotee he can't actually be thinking exactly like this or dealing like this. So then we try to understand, where is that coming from? What does that mean? Women are less intelligent. What is the definition of intelligence? There's plenty of women with like 200 IQ. Is that what Prabhupada's talking about? There are great women scientists, great women philosophers. What, 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 is, what, what do we mean by intelligence in the Vedic terms? What's he describing? Oh, he's describing the difference between the male psyche, female psyche, in terms of their connection with the material world, their attachments, the motherly nature, the emotional composition. Like, okay, so now we're talking about that. And, and okay, so we understand something about that. Um, but then we understand that devotee women are much different than devotee men, uh, non-devotee men. So, you know, so you start adding it up. And you start saying, okay, there's more nuances here. I didn't understand everything. What else does he say? And he says, oh, you know, my female disciples, oh, such and such, she's very intelligent. Oh, Prabhupada's calling a female disciple intelligent. And you find out like 50 times he's calling 50 of his different female disciples intelligent. Then you see, oh, you American boys and girls are very intelligent. Now he's calling the boys and girls. He said, but I thought Prabhupada said that Men are more intelligent than women. Why is he calling the women intelligent? Why isn't he saying you American boys and girls are intelligent? Does that mean the European boys and girls aren't intelligent? Obviously not. Why isn't he discriminating? Oh, you intelligent boys. All you intelligent American boys and less intelligent American girls. I'm so happy you're taking the Krishna consciousness. So, you know, you, you want to study everything. <laughs> so you totally understand it. And then... You know, you understand what Prabhupada said, but you also understand what he did 
and you understand what's in his heart, what's his mood there. And then you get a deeper understanding of Prabhupada. So, Krishna Karshani, all those Prabhupada memory lectures and all of you, listen to them. It will totally revolutionize your understanding of Prabhupada. Like it will, like with every video you hear, you're going to go 360 because you're going to hear things you just never knew about Prabhupada. Oh, he did that. He felt this way. I just heard one yesterday. Amazing. Actually, I heard it for like the 10th time, but I forgot. Prabhupada was talking with one of his disciples and he said, he said, you know, Prabhupada often said, I didn't like my wife. <laughs> he meant that he wasn't very attracted to her. And he said, I want to marry another one. And then one time he said, I want to go to England and marry a white woman, have white children. And like, how do we understand this? Sound like he's talking like an ordinary person. But he was talking to one disciple and he was saying, you know, my wife was very nice. She said she was... Very, very tolerant. Very tolerant. He said, but I had a short temper and I would get angry with her. And he said, um, I really regret that. I really, something like that, you know. I really feel sorry for that. Have you ever heard Prabhupada speak that way, so humanly? And then we heard another story. I don't know if I told you this. But these kinds of things, you just, they make you, they help you see Prabhupada's nature and his humanness also, because sometimes you think he's not really, he's so transcendental, he's not human. And one devotee asked Prabhupada, he said, you know, uh, uh, Prabhupada had just spoken to a devotee who was a sannyasi, and the sannyasi had just gotten married. After he left, the devotee said, Prabhupada, how do we explain to the world about a man who was a sannyasi who fell down? And Prabhupada thought about it. He said a few things. And then the last thing he said is, what does it matter? <laughs> you know, do you know how for some devotees, like things like that really matter and they write papers about it and get on the internet and talk about it. Oh, Sanyasi has fallen down. They should be rejected. You know, Of course, nobody's going to say that. But just, as a, I, I wouldn't doubt in the future somebody could say that, you know. What's going on in their movement, you know? Fallen sannyasis getting married, and now they have still have positions, and they're being respected. And Prabhupada's last statement on that, in thinking about, you know, how do we explain this? And he was like, he was saying, look at they're sincere devotees and they're serving. It doesn't matter. Grihasta, sannyas. That was Prabhupada's final statement. It, it doesn't matter. The whole thing is just like, it's a little thing. It's not a big... So to hear Prabhupada say that, it's like, wow. Because you could think that's a really big thing, sannyasi falling down. And Prabhupada's like, what does it matter? It's not important. <laughs> that he's, he's got to, to see that nature. And now, now you're going to deal with somebody who may be in a similar situation. And then you think, oh yeah, that's how Prabhupada dealt with it. Like, well, it, it wasn't a big thing. So I hope that helps you, Krishna Karshani. Homosexuality, no chance to fulfill sexual desire in so-called bona fide way. But at the same time, probably most of this is not able to stay celibate. Seems there's no place for gay people. It is, well, most people can't be celibate anyway, so there's no, <laughs> no place for anybody. <laughs> ah! 
You know what one devotee said, Krishna Krishna? He said, actually, <laughs> based, he said this based on Shastra. He knows the Shastra really well, but it could be his opinion. But I will throw it out. It's almost funny, but it's serious. He said, in homosexuality, there's no question of pregnancy. But in, in heterosexual relationships, if you prevent pregnancy through contraception, that's sinful. Homosexuality is like there's, no, there's nothing to prevent because it's not going to happen. So his analysis was it's more sinful. What do you think of that? Uh, Harley is appreciating discussion on taboo topics. Yeah, well, if you wanted to talk about taboo topics, you know you're in the right station. That's pretty much, it seems like that's all we do. Because because they need to be discussed. Uh, everyone works together as desired by Prabhupada, yes. Let, Krishna Goshani, let me say something more about the homosexuality and um, and celibacy thing. As I, as I said before, Prabhupada gave the four regulative principles. And that was it. It was like he wasn't, he wasn't putting like cameras. It was, okay, now we're going to put cameras in everyone's bedroom. And if we find anything's going on there, then we're going to pull off their neck beads, cut off their sikas, and, you know, take their dhotis. The Prabhupada wasn't like that. So Prabhupada was like, here are the four principles. This is what it is. You know what to do. Do it. And I don't want to think about it anymore. And if you're sincere, you'll be successful. So as we know, sometimes you slip, you get back up, you slip again, maybe not as often, you get back up, and eventually you hardly slip at all, and eventually you stop slipping. Now, there are devotees who never slip, but they're in the minority. And the slippy, the devotees who slip, still they're sincere, <clears throat> they get back up, they fight. So... In a sense, what we're talking about, the challenges for homosexuals, and the same challenges for heterosexuals. It's just a reality. What can we do? Reality is what it is. Okay. Harley says, probably build a house in which the whole world can live, but it seems complicated. In practice, finding out how we can make a room for every different group. Yeah, well, I think that's, I think you hit it on the head, different rooms. You know, like, if you, all the devotees who snore, go in that room. Don't bother us. We want to sleep peacefully, you know. It's like they have smoking rooms. Okay, all, all of you who smoke, you go in that room. So that's my understanding, based on practical experience of, of a house in which the whole world can live. It, it's not like everyone's going to be in one room. We have to build different rooms. And if we have the broad-mindedness to build different rooms, then so... Good, good, high fences make good fences make good neighbors, or something. High fences make good neighbors. So sometimes that's how you get along by moving into a different room. It's just, it just is, you know. But that's also intelligent. Okay, we're gonna, we're, how everyone can live in this house. Okay, so all the people like this in this room, all the people like that in that room, everyone on this floor is like that, everyone on that floor. Why not? I believe the key of understanding is not to confuse 
love with sex and vice versa. When we say we love animals, we don't associate that emotion with sexuality unless there are obvious uh, mental illnesses. We truly love everyone without the slightest trace of sexuality. Yeah, that's if you're a pure devotee, it's exactly how it is. And that's why and that's why all that anti woman stuff was just on men who having a really hard time controlling themselves. And that's why you never saw that from Prabhupada. It couldn't possibly come from him. As I was saying, racism, sexism, none of that could come. He's transcendental to that. But those who are not transcendental, they see him, some critics see him and they go, Oh, look at look at what he said. He's sexist. Yeah, you can think that way. But then look at what he did. It was never sexist. It was just the opposite. There are a lot of devotees who say Srila Prabhupada would also say the same thing based on time, place, and circumstance. How to know who is eligible to say that? Um, same thing refers to what? I'm not sure now because we lost the context. But general answer for you is you study Prabhupada's books, you hear about Prabhupada's life, you associate with senior devotees, you discuss these topics, and you pray. And most importantly, you try to be objective and don't don't come to conclusions which are preconceived. You already, you already decided what the siddhanta is, and now you're going to go read Prabhupada's books and improve, prove you're right. Why don't you just be open to see what he says um, without having to have him say anything in a particular way. I mean, Prabhupada sometimes says things which are really heavy, are really hard to accept. But he says them. And there's a lot of people that will hear that and just go, I can't accept that, or to block it out of my mind. And there'll be other people who will hear that and they'll run with it and they'll go on a crusade. You know, <laughs> And the truth is, Somewhere in the middle. We have to understand why Prabhupada said that and not always think that the way I'm seeing it is exactly what he meant. It may not be. He built a house in which the whole world can live, but it seems complicated in practice. Yeah. Well, right now, we haven't built a house. Potentially, yes, but we have work to do. Naturally, everyone has a room in the house, yes. But it's a matter of making them feel that they are they belong. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, Harley. Accommodating we are as devotees is how we make others feel. Okay, so we don't... Obviously, we're not going to accommodate sin, sinful activity, and so forth. But we are, we're talking about accommodating devotees who sincerely want to serve Krishna or anyone who wants to sincerely serve. Srila Prabhupada many times said there is no equality and that women are inferior to men. He also repeatedly says a wife should serve her husband and the husband should serve Krishna. I agree. Wait, 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 wait. Of course, one problem is some husbands are useless. So why would you want to serve them? 
some women are more advanced than their husbands, and they can directly serve their guru in Krishna. So, not that they avoid their husbands. <clears throat> husbands should serve Krishna. I agree. This does not mean that Srila Prabhupada discriminated unfairly. As he's just making a statement about the external identity, social position, and not the soul. However, how do we follow this in practice? This verse, Prabhupada said, spiritual platform, there's no difference. And he also said, when the women become devotees, they're not ordinary anymore. anymore. Hmm. How do we follow in practice? Is this, is this the essence of, it is the essence of Vaishnava culture first that we should focus on. Our social responsibility. Yeah, you can't throw the philosophy out. Thus, men need to focus on their responsibility to support, care, and protect women. Women should focus on serving men. You cannot serve a man who does not, it's really hard to serve a man who doesn't support, care, and protect you. Sorry to say that, but it's true. But if a man thinks that his wife should serve him, or if his wife thinks a man should supply everything she wants. They are following the mood of Vaishnava culture. Yeah. Exactly. Me, serve a woman. I'm a man. I don't do that. I'm not henpecked. I'm not a slave of my wife. What are you talking about? I was a brahmachari for 20 years. I'm not going to go serve a woman. She's going to serve me. I'm in charge. I wear the pants to trousers, as you say in England. That's not the mood of Vaishnavism. So naturally, a man's happy. His wife is nice, good mood, listens to him, and this and that. But I can tell you, Sardirasa, a lot of men don't like it if their wife just does what they say. They they want a woman who's going to say, no, what you just said is wrong. And he'll think about it and he'll say, thank you. You've given me another another angle of vision on it. So, you know, the world's not just like one way. And so generally, yeah, the man likes to be in charge. He likes a woman who helps him and supports him. But a woman likes a man who helps her and supports her. Right? And if he helps her, she'll help him. That's what Prabhupada wanted. Not like one-sided, militaristic. So now you're the wife, and this is here's the whip, and this is what you do. That was not what Prabhupada's saying. But some men, men read it that way because that's what they want. <laughs> Why we need to know the private life of others. It doesn't help. It's their life. So, please correct me if I haven't understood correctly. My understanding is that all the rules, regulations, Varnashram Dharma, don't exist for us to put others in their place. Yeah, that's one understanding. For sure. Well, if you're a chatra and you're organizing... There is a place for everybody, but it's not to make them feel lesser than someone else. The rules and regulations of Varnashram are to 
I think we have to remember that the whole point is to encourage people to do devotional service. So there's, you know, if a rule or regulation you put in place is discouraging people, then that's not the purpose of the rule. To, not to put others in the place and justify ego-driven, insensitive behavior. They exist to help us achieve individual and collective stability and help us detach step by step and also encourage us from material desires so we could peacefully work developing Krishna consciousness. Also, you know, to help to encourage everybody. And if, if you're not a Brahmin, don't feel bad. Maybe you're a Vaishya. Maybe you're a Shudra, maybe you're a Chatriya. You know, there's a place for you. That's Varnashram means place for everybody according to their nature. So you don't have to feel... Now, in our society, you kind of feel bad about your nature because, you know, you're supposed to be a scientist or a, a Vaishya and make millions of dollars and you, you just like to, you know, make jewelry or something. What's wrong with me? I'm not a scientist. You know, for an ashram, you won't feel that way. So the rules should be applied according to what will help the individual at his or her current state. Exactly. And Prabhupada says that in his books. In more, more or less. Okay, Marco, talk to Mark Zuckerberg and let me know what he says. Okay, it's time to end, everyone. And uh, we've changed the time for Japa because the, I guess they didn't have daylight savings time in Hawaii and we were doing our Japa at 6 a.m. Hawaii time. So it's 11 a.m. It's an hour earlier than we normally do it. So you're all invited. That will be in, it's 9.30, 10.30. That will be in one hour and 22 minutes from now. Hare Krishna. Srila Prabhupada ki jai, go Premanandi Hari Hari Bo. Go Ranga. Hare Krishna. Welcome to all of you. Srila Prabhupada ki jai. I have an interesting topic I want to speak about, at least to begin speaking about. And that is the topic of how to understand, this is a, a form of maya, how to understand Prabhupada's instructions by understanding Prabhupada's mood, because sometimes his instruction, or what appears to be his instruction, or Shastic instruction, doesn't always correspond to his mood. And if we, if we take uh, some instructions, literally, without considering Prabhupada's own feelings within the context of application, we could come up with the wrong idea. And so this is very important. And this is being framed within the context of maya, because this is a form of maya. But first, we're going to chant. Hare Krishna. So, we are broadcasting uh, off my computer, and I think the sound is okay. Radha Madhava Kunjabihari Is that okay? Volume-wise, can you let me know? Last time it was distorting because I was going through the phone. Anyway, I, I think this is okay. If it's not, just send a message. And we'll change something. Jiradha Kunjabi 
So I want to begin with a story. Some of you have heard this story, but I want to describe the details of the story because the real insight is in the details. So this takes place, um, I believe it was 1976 in Los Angeles. I think I was actually there when it took place. The Jumuna and the other devotees in England made the Govinda prayers in 1970, and they sent it to Prabhupada, and he really liked it. Excuse me. And then, prior to that time, we were actually chanting the Govinda prayers every day before class. Not that melody, because that melody hadn't been developed. And Prabhupada had asked us to chant them, and he said Luchitanya chanted them every day, so it became a ritual. We chanted a few verses before Bhagavatam class, or in those days, we didn't have Bhagavatam class, we had Bhagavad Gita class in the morning and in the evening. So when Prabhupada heard that, he really liked it. We were told he heard it, he was crying, feeling some ecstasy, meditating on Krishna, and also feeling the devotion. I think we can understand he was feeling the devotion and dedication of the devotees who made the recording and also uh, the fact that George Harrison was there who was very dear to Prabhupada and he he was dear to Prabhupada, Prabhupada dear to him. So Prabhupada at that time asked that this be played in the temple at the time every morning and then it became uh, played at the time of greeting of the deities. And any of you who joined after 
this time, are very accustomed to this because this is the standard. So some brahmacharis got together and wrote a letter to Prabhupada about, about this song because they felt it would be more transcendental, more purifying, and better if Prabhupada were chanting it because they were brahmacharis. And so every morning they're greeting the deities and now they're listening to a woman singing. And they're also listening, if you, I don't know if you noticed, but there's bass, there's organ, there's guitar, either guitar or harpsichord, guitar, drums. You know, it's, you know, bass, guitar, and drums, and organ, you know, that's rock and roll. Those are the instruments of rock and roll. Hard rock, soft rock, so, you know, it. You know, so they were saying, we, we don't want to hear a woman's voice, and, you know, this is like, it's just modern pop music. And the reason they wrote that is because in a purport, Prabhupada was talking about how nowadays it's very popular, women singing has become very popular. In movies. I, I think he was referring to specifically movies. And he went on explaining that for a renunciate, it's not good to hear the singing of a woman. It can, you know, they become attracted to the beautiful voice, their minds become agitated, and so forth. So when they read that purport, then they decided, well, we would like it, at least at this temple, if we didn't have to listen to a woman, because after all, what you said in the purport is that as renunciates, brahmacharis want to press and sannyas. It's a subtle fall down if, if, if Prabhupada said to appreciate the beautiful face of a woman for a renunciate or for a renunciate to appreciate the singing of a woman is a subtle fall down. Okay, so all you grihastas, there's no problem for you. You're already fallen, you don't have to worry. Sometimes we joke like that. But in a sense, Grihastas are immune because they're already surrounded by the beautiful face and the beautiful voice of their wife and daughters. Well, it's part of the ashram and they're, you know, in one sense, immune to it, being surrounded by it and dealing with it. So... You know, the general principles, brahmachari shouldn't associate with a woman. This seemed like a kind of, you know, subtle association you appreciate. Not that we don't appreciate women, but appreciate the physical aspects of women, which means it's kind of like, you know, basically, Prabhupada's saying is it's like a form of connecting subtly with a woman, or you could, uh, sometimes we say subtle sex. But you understand. So they thought, on the basis of what Prabhupada said in his books, that he would give them permission because they had gone to the temple president, and I think the temple president was reluctant. Or maybe the temple president said, you should write Prabhupada because Prabhupada established this. How can I stop it? So it seems that they were justified on the basis of Shastra because what Prabhupada said there was very, very clear that 
renunciates should not hear the singing of a woman. And that 